Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner right here on your source for Cool Jazz and More, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And welcome to the Mark Steiner Show and our weekly feature, Soundbites, our look at food, our future, and our environment here on the Mark Steiner Show. And good to have you all with us. Uh, at the top, let me say before we jump into this conversation, two things. Uh, one is a very personal thing that this will be the last day on air that I'll be working with our producer, Stephanie Mavronis, uh, who uh, will be leaving us to go to Princeton University uh, to get her graduate degree in public policy. Uh, brilliant young woman who's been working with us for four years and has really helped steer this ship and been a creative force behind much of our work, uh, a lot of our work, uh, and a great team member. Uh, we will really miss her. This whole station will miss her. You hear her voice here on the air when she is doing uh, her, the voiceovers on a number of promos in the air as well. So Marcellus will lose his mind not having Stephanie here to do those promos. And uh, we just want to well, thank her for all the work she's done. We love having her here, and we will sorely miss her. She's uh, been one of the greatest producers we've ever had. So it's good having you on the air with us. And just said I would say that during the course of today over and over. I'm saying it again. So, um, and on the way also to the conversation, I have to remind you of one very important thing, uh, because without this, we may not be on the air. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are brought to you in part by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, offering a full range of financial services. MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. More information at www.mecu.com or at steinershow.org is MeQ, Baltimore Credit Union's banner. We are going to tackle a subject which one of our guests has said is a, a constant war around oysters in this, in, in this world and why that is and why, this, why we may be changing direction in the state politically around those issues. Dr. Kelton Clark is in the studio. He's a Maryland Oyster Advisory Commission uh, member, and he's director of Morgan State University's Patuxent Environmental and Aquatic Research Laboratory. Dr. Clark, good to have you on the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, Peyton <coughs> Robinson with us, is with us. He's director of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Chesapeake Bay Office. And Peyton Robinson, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you. It's great to be here. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. Tweet us at Mark Steiner. Uh, you can uh, also uh, send us an email to talk at steinershow.org. Um, so uh, let me begin, uh, Dr. Kelton Clark, with you. I mean, you, you did make that, that comment, which I found really interesting, that, about oyster wars, and that it's been part of us, no matter how you look at the history of oysters in Maryland. You were quoted as that in the sun, I thought. I uh, said that um, something similar, some, something to the fact that uh, everyone thinks that their interest is the interest. Right. Paraphrasing myself. It's it's been like oyster wars since back in the early 1900s. Someone was someone was quoted saying. I mean, so it's been a political question, is what I'm saying, an environmental question, and a war between over oysters is nothing new. But the the, the permutation we've had now in the last five years is what I'm kind of really interested in, in exploring and why we are in the place we are. I mean, so maybe yeah. Let me let me back away from that. Sure. What, what you, yeah, I'm yeah. really backpedaling away from that oyster war comment, which was. Uh, oysters have a place in our society, in our environment, in our waters. And they're very important. There's a lot of stakeholders involved there. So each of those stakeholders think that their stake is the most important stake, and there has to be some way to divide those oysters up amongst people. Calling it a war, I think, is a little bit too extreme. It's just <laughs> any other natural resource. Natural resources are limited. How do you divide natural? How do you divide a limited resource amongst the public? And it has become a limited resource. And, 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 and Peyton Robinson, I mean, where we are now, I mean, if you give us a bit of history here, five years ago, um, there was a new effort launched to replenish our oysters in this bay, right? Yeah. I, I mean, oyster restoration in Maryland has been underway for a while. Um, there, there are some recent um, increases in effort, um, mainly in, in concert with the Chesapeake Bay Watershed Agreement, which is the regional compact signed by the governors of the states, as well as um, the Environmental Protection Agency for the federal government and the Chesapeake Bay Commission. Um, and, and, of course, in, in that agreement, um, that, that regional compact, those, those parties agreed to try to restore oysters in 10 tributaries in Chesapeake Bay by the year 2025. And the agreement was signed in, uh, in 2014. So, um, you know, that establishes a, a renewed effort. Oyster restoration has been underway for a while, but um, but that's sort of the main driver right now. I would just throw in to your, to your point about the, the, the status of the population. Um, generally, the, the, the statistics that's used is that the current population of oysters in Chesapeake Bay is less than 1% of its historic um, uh, productivity or historic um, uh, 
presence. So and and so now we have it. So so five years ago we began replenishing the oyster beds. Let me take a step back to, to understand this better, Dr. Clark. One of the things is it's for us to realize is that almost all the oysters that are dredged and taken out of the bay are oysters that have been planted in the bay from people raising them and then dropping them in. Is that right? That question would require more data than is available here, but um, if you said that, you, I don't think you'd find much argument. Well, uh, yeah, I might help out there, Kelly, just a little. I, I think the, the oysters that are harvested in Chesapeake Bay come from different sources, and so maybe a good way to think about the competition between uses that Kelly talked about, the fact that we've got a limited resource, but there are a number of interests that are, are, you know, want to use it for one thing or another. I typically think of it in terms of three basic subdivisions. One is oysters that are in the Chesapeake Bay for ecology. They're, they serve as filters of water. They serve as habitat for fish and crabs. So there's that habitat value for oysters. The second is what's typically referred to as the wild harvest. That's public fishery area that's open for watermen to go and harvest oysters off the bottom using a variety of gear types. And the third is aquaculture, what's typically referred to as oyster farming, which is putting oysters out in cages or on the bottom, a variety of techniques, and then harvesting those oysters once they reach a certain size for market. And actually the trend is is an increase in that type of oystering or oyster farming to serve actually a pretty robust market for oysters in the region, everything from from restaurants to shocking houses. And let me say that uh, on – and maybe this is a conversation with Peyton we'll end up having – but when the show was, as you point out, was about oyster restoration. Right. When you're doing restoration, that has a singular purpose of increasing the number of oysters in the bay for their ecological and ecosystem functions. That does not increase the oysters for all the other stakeholders. The focus is on that ecological and ecosystem function. But other stakeholders have a stake in oysters. So whenever you do something on oysters, the other stakeholders want to express and have some input from their interest. And, and it's a, that I misquoted you at first. I apologize, you. But what you did say was that oysters are very political. That was your quote. So, so talk a bit about what that means. So, you, you, when, when we when we're talking about restoring the oyster population of the bay, both as a as a harvesting of a, supposed to be harvested, but also as the kind of natural filters to the bay that once in our Chesapeake Bay's history, the oysters filtered the water. There were so many of them that they actually kept the bay clean. So talk a bit about what that means and what the, 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 the from your perspective, the, the political, the politics are right now about where people can dredge, not dredge, and how that fits in the whole question of restoration. Once again, if you want specifics on the regulations in the Bay, I think Peyton would be a much better person to answer that. But I just meant in the science of it. I mean, where you see it. Well, if you want to restore oysters, whatever you want to do with oysters, you're going to do it in the Chesapeake Bay. Chesapeake Bay has a limited size. So whatever you do, you're going to take something away from somebody else. Whatever, when you put oyster beds here, was there something else going on? So now you have to decide how are you going to split up that bay. And that's where it becomes very political. If your object is restoration, then you have, say, well, this is how much we need for restoration. If your object is fisheries, then you say, well, this is how much we have for fisheries. As long as the bay has a finite size, you will always have that political discussion on what to do with it. And so and how do you think that plays out with the idea now that, that um, and clearly I think it was important that, that, that people in the water waterman industry were uh, given a, a larger say in what's happening on this commission. I think that is an important move to make. But now it seems like the, there is a real question about where people should be allowed to dredge and how that fits into um, uh, the, the ability to restore oysters. And, and, and so what, what can you talk, how can you uh, clarify that for our listeners, Peyton? So, so, yeah, I think um, you, you referenced the Maryland Oyster Advisory Commission and building off of what Kelly said, you know, that, that is the, the public forum. Essentially, those representatives on that commission um, are some of the interests in, in the state of Maryland. And so the resolution of the conflicts about what's appropriate to happen in various places is, is in that forum, is trying to work that out and, and figure out the trade-offs associated with any, any policy option on where oyster restoration or harvest should exist. But, but going to sort of what's the, what's the landscape look like, the other activity that's underway, or, or, or report, I should say, that will be released uh, by the end of this week or early next week by the Maryland Department of Natural Resources, essentially is evaluating over the past five years how has the state's oyster management strategy worked out. Um, that included, five years ago, establishing oyster sanctuaries, places that were not open for harvest um, throughout Maryland's waters, 
as well as areas that remained open to the public fishery. And, and also, this, again, third component is, was, was trying to promote oyster aquaculture and do some things like streamline the permitting process and, and make it easier for um, oyster farmers to get into the business. So the report that the state will release shortly is essentially appraising all of that work and, and producing for this discussion by the commission, um, what, what does that tell us? And, and how did that work out? And therefore, what does that pretend for the future? Uh, Go ahead, Dr. Clark. Yeah. Yeah, Robert T. could make it from the Waterman's Association. One of the reasons that we're here was some of the, the issues that they had brought forth. Yeah, I'm sorry they're not here as well. But. But, um, so then speaking about that, that plan that uh, was outlaid, laid out by uh, Peyton just now is that when we're doing that restoration, you were impacting, from the Waterman's view, their ability to fish. Mm-hmm. And now the question is, have we, and where we're at right now is, are the hatch, are the restoration places, are the sanctuaries, is it helping? Is it working? And like I said, they're not here, so I won't go. I don't want to speak for them too much. But this, right, right. this issue here that we're seeing in the paper and the discussion and what's going on is, is I think an attempt to say let's stop and take a look at this restoration. We're only really talking about I think 0.5 percent of the whole area that is under question, and review it in the context of a more socio-economic content. Right now when you're doing restoration, you review it in the ecological and uh, ecosystem function. I think the watermen are looking and saying, well, yes, that is the reason that you're doing restoration, but we are in the bay, and do we need to add an economic uh, social context to what you're doing on restoration? So is it, that's, that's really interesting. So the, the question I think we would, and maybe one day when we get a, a ranging panel on here on this, we really interested to wrestle with this, because I mean, are, are there contradictions in that? Um, it, are there, is it possible for that? I know, I know everybody has to make political compromises in the in the world we live in. Hmm. Uh, but is it possible to even think about restoring oysters to a position where they once were, even forty or fifty years ago, uh, or seventy five years ago, uh, and still have the kind of dredging in places where we, where where the sanctuaries are? I mean, maybe, how, how do you think that works? Um. I think that the work that the Department of Natural Resources, NOAA, and Army Corps of Engineers has done on that, uh, I, I agree that uh, with the findings that they have and the way that they laid it out. Uh, but when you do that, when you do do Peyton, and you can jump in any time on what yeah, that yeah, process Yeah, I'm going to go right was, back to Peyton, yeah. That when you do that, when you sit down and say, this is how we're going to restore, there's going to be somebody who has some loss in this finite area. So, yes, I do believe it can be restored. And yes, I do believe it can be restored in such a way to, um, to accommodate all of the stakeholders. Yeah, I would just offer, um, you know, just in terms of some, some numbers, in terms of the, the area available for oysters in Maryland's waters, in other words, the habitat that historically supported healthy populations of oysters, when the state five years ago established its oyster uh, management plan, it, it set up sanctuaries in about 24% of the total habitat that, again, historically produced good, good amounts of oysters. Um, so some of that debate about what's reasonable to set aside for that purpose as opposed to what's reasonable to remain open in the public fishery is, is part of the story. There's also this part of the story I mentioned, though, in terms of the increasing growth of aquaculture as an industry in not just Maryland, but in Virginia. Virginia has historically, over the past 10 years or so, um, accelerated growth of aquaculture faster than Maryland, um, meaning that Maryland still has a lot of opportunity and at least some trends indicate that, that industry is probably shifting more towards aquaculture as a, as a more uh, profitable way to, to harvest oysters. So, so, again, that's the mix of the various uses. But back to um, the distinction I want to make between sanctuaries, areas that were set aside for, for not harvesting, basically, and areas that we've done intensive restoration. There's a difference between those, those two things. The sanctuaries essentially were... Again, areas left alone, but but the tributaries we've restored uh, on the eastern shore include Harris Creek, the Tread Avon River, and the Little Chop Tank River. So just just three of the total area that was set aside as sanctuaries, we've done this intensive effort. And then just quickly, I want to mention Harris Creek, the area that we finished restoring last year, um, has has been the the most intensive effort to date. And and Noah just released a report yesterday um, on essentially that question of how's it working. And, and by and large, um, we find that the work we've done in Harris Creek is, in fact, meeting metrics we established for restoration success. And so we feel like we've got some good news 
um, in terms of your question, can we get back to some place? Can we get back to the way the Bay was 50 or 100 years ago? Um, that's open to debate. But can we achieve viable oyster populations that might actually be able to reproduce and continue on their own? Um, we certainly got some promising early signs of success there in Harris Creek. Let me ask you a question. I'll talk about the science of this as well. I mean, so I, we've all read, the, not all, but the, the history of oysters in the Bay. We read the stories about when the Europeans first stumbled into the Chesapeake Bay, as I like to say. Um, as they stumbled to a place where there were mounds of oysters so huge they were coming out of the water and they had to steer their ships around the oysters. Um, and they play a very critical role in, in the health of our water, not just in terms of what we like to eat. So what, what is that role? Just for our listeners to understand that, the, the role oysters play in, and the research you're doing, how, how far, what, what, is that, what is the work you're doing? Uh, yeah. Have, so, to, have to, go ahead. I was going to Dr. Clark and then Peyton. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kelly. Uh, the first question is uh, the, the, the ecological role of yeah. oysters in the bay. Yeah. The, uh, they provide, a, they're called, well, I don't know if we still use that term, Peyton, but anchor species. They have a population of a certain, uh, in a system you have to have anchor species. Like the easiest example of that is, is a tree. You can't have a forest without a tree, so trees are anchor systems for a forest. So for the Chesapeake Bay, Oysters are one of those anchor species. You need those oyster reefs. The reefs provide protection for juvenile species. The, uh, without them, it's all one big muddy bottom, so there's no place for hard-bottom organisms like mussels and other things and barnacles to set. Um, that was habitat. They also provide the, the big thing that everybody likes to say is they filter so that uh, phytoplankton, the small algae in the bay, they remove that and return that energy down into the bottom where it can be regenerated. So they provide both a a habitat and a filtering uh, function within the Chesapeake Bay. And what were you about to say, Peyton? No, that's that's right on. So so those things that Kelly just described are what we call ecosystem services, kind of a technical name, but uh, we've, NOAA has supported a variety of projects under what we call an oyster reef ecosystem services project, uh, both evaluating the extent to which oysters serve as habitat for fish, so actually trapping fish that are around oyster reefs um, that have been restored to see whether they, in fact, you know, provide that service. We funded research on nutrient cycling with the bottom. Um, oysters are, are certainly valuable as filters, and they actually take up nitrogen and other pollutants from the water and incorporate them into their, their shell and tissue. And then we've also been taking a look at the uh, economic issues uh, Kelly mentioned earlier to try to understand what are the associated spin-off benefits, if you will, of the restoration of oyster reefs. Most uh, fishers in the bay know that um, one of the greatest places to go catch rockfish is over oyster reefs. So there are associated economic returns from uh, recreational fishing where those oyster reefs have been brought back successfully and therefore attract those kinds of game fish that people like to catch. So for the two of you, before we have to to go, I'm curious for both of you what the end game is here in your work. Uh, and and where and 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 because there'll be this is going to be an ongoing conversation with the administration and with Waterman. Where where, where do you think? What, what are you looking for this to take us? Well, let me let me. That's you know a clean bay. Just, right. Just stop and go on. <laughs> right. But let me say that uh, for for the issue in front of us right now that uh, we both have to address, I guess on Monday. Um, What's Monday? The next Oyster Advisory Commission meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, the criteria. You know, perhaps we have to, we uh, can look at that criteria. Uh, we've done a very good job of looking at, from science point of view, what that criteria should be. Uh, some of the questions that still come up, especially from the watermen, well, is that actually giving us additional harvest outside of this tributary restoration area? For that, we'd have to look at other things. We might have to look at the genetics of what's going in and the genetics in the other areas to see if the oysters we planted is actually providing younger oysters outside. Um, do we want to look at the social economic issues. Do we want to add to our criteria how have they impacted harvest? Um, in which case, we would need to in, uh, change our monitoring. Uh, one of the questions that have come up is that trust between stakeholders. And for that, you might think about uh, having independent monitoring. Right now, our monitoring is done essentially by the people who are putting the oysters in. We could put out a call for proposals. There are many other people who could do monitoring. And... Um, Let's look at the fishermen, the watermen who come to the meetings. I've been to the Maryland Agricultural Coordinating Council, this one. So we have things on oyster restoration. We have things on agriculture. Do we have a commission or a committee within the state of that the state of Maryland could put up for fisheries 
to say, here's a group of people who are interested and impacted on fisheries, and put them not in the Department of Natural Resources, whose job it is to protect resources, but put it someplace like the Department of Commerce, whose job it is to increase and protect business. So, Peyton, and give us a final, a final thought for me before we have to take a break. Yeah, sure. I'd say the end game for NOAA is, you know, generally more oysters. Um, in the context of restoration, that's reefs that eventually become self-sustaining, enough oysters to be able to produce successive populations of oysters that mean we don't have to keep going out and replanting them and putting public dollars into that. So ultimately, our success would be getting oysters that work on their own. Um, but more oysters means not just oysters for those places that we want to protect and preserve as reefs, but those oysters produce larvae that go and set other places where they can be fished up as part of the public fishery or used in aquaculture settings and, and produce more oysters in farms. So um, all those things have to work together. So the end game is essentially resolving the conflicts and providing an opportunity for those three to coexist. Well, we're going to have a great deal more to say about oysters in the future in our bay in the coming months. Uh, and we're going to look at this very closely and have both these gentlemen back. Uh, you just heard Peyton Robinson's voice, Director of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Chesapeake Bay Office, and Dr. Kelton Clark, who is a Maryland Oyster Advisory Commission member and Director of Morgan State University's Patuxent Environmental and Aquatic Research Laboratory uh, that we hope to visit very soon and do a story about their work there as well. Uh, so thank both of you very much for joining us here on the Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites. Thank you for thank taking you. up the subject. Well, we take a short break. We're going to come right back with Tom Philpot from Mother Jones uh, talking about uh, this election and agriculture, especially in the Clinton campaign. Sound bites of the Mark Steiner Show here on your source for cool jazz and more. W E A A, eighty-eight point nine FM, the voice of the community. It's been a while since we talked to him, which is too bad. But I'm glad he's back with us. Tom Philpot, who's Mother Jones food and agricultural reporter, co-founder of Maverick Farms in North Carolina. Tom, welcome back. Hey, Mark. How you doing? I'm doing good. Good. You sound great. Um, let, let's go right to your piece that you wrote, which I really found interesting about uh, uh, the stuff you wrote in Mother Jones on this election. Um, and let me start with something that you actually wrote before, okay. uh, which is the, the which is the, the there's something disturbing about one of Hillary's top vice presidential policy picks who didn't who wasn't picked, but he will have an influence I think on this incoming administration, uh, and that's Tom Vilsack, the former Secretary of Agriculture. Right. Talk, talk, I want to talk a bit about that. Okay, so. The thing about Vilsack is that, you know, he was a governor of Iowa um, in the 2000s and, um, and not, also in the, I think starting in 1998. And, you know, if you're going to be governor of that state, you're going to get involved with agri- agribusiness interests. And he did. He, um, you know, he's very highly regarded by the sort of big biotech and pesticide companies. Um, he also did some progressive things. You know, he's kind of a good centrist Democrat in Iowa, kind of a, you know, good Midwestern middle of the road kind kind of guy. Um, as, as USDA director, he has, you know, again, done some good things and done some bad things. Um, you know, in some ways you could consider him the most progressive USDA, um, executive since Henry Wallace. Um, he was really organic probably more than other people did. He, um, he recognized, um, sort of the, the need to, to support, you know, not just big agribusiness, but also small and medium scale and regional food systems. He put some muscle behind that. Um, on the other hand, he definitely pushed big ag interests and a couple of times over his tenure, he, he seemed to challenge them. He seemed ready to challenge them. There was a, um, a point when he almost challenged the poultry industry and the way that it treats farmers, um, kind of in your area, uh-huh. um, around you know Maryland, Virginia. Um, and, and he pulled back from it under, uh, under pressure from House Republicans. And um, there's a, a couple of instances like that. There's also some things on regulation of GMO crops, where he seemed to take seriously 
uh, worry, very real worries from organic farmers that there would be genetic drift, that GMO, the genes from GMO crops would drift into organic and, not, and non-GMO crops and, and cause trouble. Um, and he sort of expressed, he acknowledged those fears as real, but when the time came to make decisions, and I'm thinking about the GM alpha decision, he, um, you know, the USDA ends up citing on, you know, going onto the side of, of big agro um, business. And the thing that really, I think, is a black mark on his tenure is that he, there are these these new rules that have been sitting around, these proposed rules for the poultry industry um, on slaughterhouse kill lines. And and this is a, a plan that, that dates back to George W. Bush. Actually, George Herbert Walker Bush, I think. It's been sitting around for a long time. And, um, and the Obama USDA inherits it. And the idea is to privatize the kill line. In, order, in other words, to take government inspectors mostly off the right. kill line and replace them with company inspectors, um, and also to speed up the kill line. And if any, anyone who's followed the poultry industry knows that the um, that you're, right now uh, workers are dealing with as many as 150 birds per minute. That's a bird every. That's two birds every second um, that are that are that are whizzing by, and um, and the idea was to speed it up 25 percent. Remember um, all um, this, you know, right? An, adding an, an extra 30 birds per minute, and this was something that worker rights groups, um, poultry. Poultry worker, you know, it's a very ununionized industry, but the few unions that, that are operating at the, at the fringes of, of the industry um, were just crying bloody murder. That You know, it's already abusive and causing injuries at the current speed. And the USDA pushed and pushed and pushed this, this proposal. Um, and in the end, they, they did compromise and they privatized the kill line, but they, they didn't speed up the kill line. However, they left it open to do that in the future, and um, there's already rumblings that it's going to happen. It could happen under a Hillary Rodham Clinton administration. It could certainly ha- happen under a Trump administration. They didn't close the door on it, and, um, and, and that's the part that really just kind of makes people really upset about Bill Sachs' tenure. So going back to the article you just did, um, uh, w- when you talked about the 2016 Democratic Party platform that you said mostly is short on food policy details, but they are there. Um, there are a couple of them in there. There's, you know, vague references to supporting local and regional food systems. Um, nothing much about organic. Nothing much about uh, biotech. Um, the, I think the exciting thing that's in there, and this is something I've written about before as well, that Democratic, uh, the Democratic Party, starting, starting under Bill Clinton, really stopped enforcing antitrust. They really de-emphasized it. They, and they, they, they took this, uh, this model of antitrust up that c- companies could get as big as they wanted and industries could get as consolidated and concentrated as they wanted as long as they didn't raise prices on consumers. And if you think about the meat industry, you know, going back to that, the meat industry since that time has consolidated dramatically where now you've got you know, four companies controlling 80% of the, the beef supply in the United States. Amazing. Uh, four companies and chicken is something like 70%. So these companies have gotten really big and really consolidated, but they haven't raised prices for consumers. What they've done is they've made profits by slashing costs. That means underpaying workers. That means doing things like speeding up the kill line, um, you know, all these things like that, and environmental degradation where you've got, you know, um, pollution leaching off of factory farms and going into water. You know, these are all consequences of a business model based on slashing costs. So, I'm, and, I'm so the, the, the government's looked the other way. And so in this platform, for the first time since 1984, there's mention of antitrust. There's mention of reining in corporate consolidation. And for the food business, uh, this is one of the most consolidated industries we have in the United States. And so it could be a profound thing if Hillary Clinton were to actually see it through. So I'm curious what, what you see. And I, you didn't write about this in this thing, but I, in, this, in your article. But I'm just curious because you, you look at all these things. What's the difference between where the Democratic Party platform and Democrats are and Republicans are in, in these platforms, in the platforms around agriculture? Okay, so I'm writing today that'll oh, cool. be up tomorrow on the uh-huh. Republican Party platform. 
And the Republican Party platform is also very vague, but it is completely fixated on cutting regulation. And so it makes the, you know, it, 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 if you sort of read that and get a view of the world from that document, you've got this this world of these, you know, big, bad, mean federal regulators that are messing up profit in, in, the, in the food industry with their heavy regulations, and they're going to put a stop to that. And, um, and Trump just a couple days ago announced a, his rural advisor, he's this guy named um, uh, Mr. Herbster, um, Charles Herbster. He's a, he's a rancher, and a, a, he owns an agribusiness company in, in Nebraska. And you know, he's given hundreds of thousands of dollars to Republican campaigns in recent years, and from what I can tell, he's just a sort of good old-fashioned right-winger. I actually got him on the phone yesterday. <laughs> what do you say? He you know, mainly wanted to thunder against regulation. And I, I think he also um, – he, one of the things he's going to do is to try to convince the agribusiness community that, that uh, a, a President Trump wouldn't be anti-trade. Because as you know, Trump is denouncing the TPP and saying he's going to te- tear up all these trade deals. Right. And these companies rely on global trade. They rely on dumping their products in foreign markets. Ah, the contradictions. Yeah. So he wants to ensure <laughs> ensure people that hey, don't worry. He's gonna he's gonna get a new a, a new trade deal. It's gonna be great. You won't believe it. You know, kind of kind of that kind of Trumpian logic. And you know, the other one is immigration, because you know the the um, the agribusiness world relies on immigrant labor, much of it undocumented. And here you've got Donald thundering against immigration and declaring he's going to build walls. And so another job of Herbster is to convince people, oh, he's not going to take your immigrants away. He's going to take those bad, you know, rapist immigrants away, which is, you know, a, a, a pretty uh, delicate line to be walking. So I'm, I'm curious when, when you compare the two. I mean, what's the, what, what are the glaring differences here between um, because I, you know, and unless we're arguing about the ag bill that comes up every five years, right? People don't pay attention. I mean, most people don't pay attention, correct? So- yeah, you know, I would say there are are differences, and I would say probably the biggest difference is that the Democrats, I think, will defend hunger programs. Uh-huh. I think you know the the biggest one being SNAP, the supplemental you know food program that. Um, used to be known as food stamps, which is a very, very important program for keeping pe- keeping poor people out of hunger. It, you know, if we took that away, we would um, we would have a whole bunch more. We already have you know something like 16 million people in this country who are food insecure, and ki- and killing SNAP would rise that dramatically and convert poverty into hunger, which would just be a horrible thing. And that the the Republicans, you know, in this. In their in their platform, and also they've made several attempts in recent years to kill SNAP or to cut it dramatically. And I do think Hillary, even though she participated in welfare reform in the '90s as first lady, I do think she would defend this program as Obama did for the most part. For the most part. Um, so, but you also write about GMOs. You just mentioned how the that that the the, the agribusiness industry is. Um, and the man who that that, uh, that Trump has picked, um, yeah. whose name I've already forgotten. I'm sorry, Herbster. Herbster, Mr. Herbster. 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 Thank you, thank you. Um, so what? But, but also, G, but GMOs are another issue here on both sides. No, right? I believe GMOs are an issue where we would see something very similar on very on both similar. Sides. Okay. Yeah, I think we would see. You know, I think we're going to see a deregulation of uh, of GMOs going forward, whether Trump or Hillary wins. So 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 now I mean you talked about the the, the emails that were leaked, um, and you saw that that the State Department under Secretary Clinton was uh, lobbying foreign countries to to loosen up on their GMO regulations. So yeah, what, what, what do you what do you think? Talk look ahead, uh, two thousand seventeen and beyond. Where do you think the battlegrounds will be, no matter who's president? Well, I think that the Republicans will continue to attack SNAP, and so I think that's going to be one battleground. Um, I think that, you know, we have in terms of mergers and acquisitions in the food industry, we've got a massive one happening, um, Dow and DuPont, which are both large producers of GMO seeds and also pesticides are combining and the, the federal antitrust regulators are going to be looking at that deal. And then you've got Monsanto 
talking to both Bayer and BASF, these two gigantic German um, chemical companies that have very strong agribusiness ties. And so you're looking at, you know, very imminently uh, a serious consolidation that if all these deals go through, if, if Monsanto does end up selling out to one of these companies, you'll have four companies that control 60% of the global seed market and also the global pesticide market, the same four companies, which would just be an incredible consolidation. And here in the United States, it would be even higher percentages. I think you know, for corn and soybean seeds, you'd have three companies with like 80% of the market. Um, and so I think that's going to be a battleground. And you know, I'm not confident that the, Dem- that, that the Democrats would actually challenge it. But I am pretty certain that the Republicans uh, would not. So, so that's one thing. Um, you know, other things are, you know, how we spend federal resources to s- support farms. And, uh-huh. th- and this gets back to the farm bill that you mentioned earlier. And a- again, you know, probably pretty similar agendas to sort of keep the same system going is, is what I would expect on that front. It'd be interesting to see how this all unfolds. I mean, looking at all the issues of uh, around immigration and farm policy, and especially race uh, and racism in this country, and, and how this how this election affects all of that, uh, we lose sight of this other stuff because it, it gets under the radar. Um, and I and I appreciate your pulling it out of the radar and putting it up front. And, and Tom, let, let's get you back here regularly. I really enjoy having these conversations with you. Great, Mark. Love right. to be here. Take care, man. Good to have you. you with us. All right, Tom Bye-bye. Philpot. Mother Jones Food and Ag Reporter, we will, uh, and writes that column from Mother Jones. We will uh, have them all connected to our website here at steinershow.org. Uh, stay with us. We'll be right back and look at our air conditioning. Welcome back. Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites right here on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. We now talk with Katie Herzog, who's staff writer at the environmental news website, grist.org, uh, written these really interesting articles about air conditioning. I never knew the history of air conditioning until I read these articles and made me want to read more and know more. And she's with us. Katie, welcome. Good to have you with us on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. And y'all can join us here at 410-319-8888. You can tweet us at Mark Steiner. You can also uh, send us an email to talk at steinershow.org, 410-319-8888. Katie, so I'm one of those guys who grew up in an age before anybody had air conditioning that you wrote about in your article. (laughs) <laughs> when they didn't exist, windows were open and fans were going, uh, when most people didn't have it. But still, it, 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 one of the things you open your piece with, which I think is a good place to start and then kind of wind through the history and see where it takes us, um, is that is, is, the, is the role air conditioning plays in global warming while, keep, while we're keeping ourselves cool in our homes, which, by the way, I do. When it's 109 degrees in Baltimore, <laughs> my air conditioning is on. Yeah, certainly. Mine would be an honor as well if I lived in if I lived in Baltimore. Luckily for me, I live in Seattle, so it's not something. Yeah, right. That, yeah, that's one way one way to deal with the air conditioning problem is just to move to Seattle. <laughs> My brother lives there, so I can hang out there. Yeah, yeah. So to talk um, about yeah. so what is what is that? I mean, to talk about what it really does. So air conditioning uses a huge amount of energy. About five percent of Americans' total energy use every year comes from running our ACs, and about eighty-six percent of America is air conditioned in the summertime. So it's a huge amount of energy, um, and that also spews a ton of carbon dioxide into the air. About a hundred million tons of CO two each year, um, you know, hit the atmosphere because of us running our air conditionings. And then not only that. Air conditioning also uses the coolant that replaced CFCs. If you remember, in the 80s, CFCs were uh, phased out because of the hole in the ozone layer. They've been replaced by something called called HFCs, hydrofluorin, um, uh, excuse me, um, yeah, hydrofluorin carbons. Right. And they uh, they're the most actually the most potent greenhouse gas that America or that humans use in, for any activity, and so it's, it traps a ton of heat um, in the atmosphere as well. So the real the real irony here is that. By cooling our homes, we're actually making the outside warmer. So the more we AC we use, the more AC we need. 
So there is a contradiction there, but of course we, we're in a world now of these high-rise houses and apartments, and um, and, and we all work in office buildings, and mm-hmm. uh, these factories producing things have to have coolants. I mean, so it, so what, where do we go with them? Because it, it's 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 a reality hard to, that's almost impossible, it seems, to step away from. Yeah, it's a huge problem, and and part of the part of the issue is that. Homes now, starting in the in the post-war years in the housing boom in the 1950s, homes started to be built around AC. So we got these mass-produced homes with no insulation, no insula- uh, no ventilation. Porsches were done away with. You know, we had these sort of just like cheap homes that were really a boon for developers, and people also liked the AC that they that they that they came with. But by building houses around AC, we've created you know we've created this millions of homes that require AC. The same is true of apartment buildings and offices, you know, and so you, you know, you might go to work now, maybe it's cool in the morning, um, you get to work and your office is, is freezing cold, you know, so you have to wear, you have to wear a sweater in your office, you know, all of these things are unnecessary, but we've just created this world that just requires AC. So, so, I mean, that is where we are. So I'm wondering, well, let me take a step backwards to history, then come back Mm -hmm. to where we are and where we might go. Um, Because there was a time before air conditioning. Yes, and, yes. There's, and, there's many years before you <laughs> Right? And I mean, even, as I said, jokingly, but seriously said, as a kid growing up in a neighborhood where the windows were open uh, throughout the house um, and, uh, and you had fans going everywhere uh, and there was a lot more communication between people and that was mm-hmm. a reality. Um, and then, you, you know, and you live in inner cities of, of America, people are on their stoops all the time and are mm-hmm. on their stoops all the time because it's just so damn hot in the house. So, so what about the history before air conditioning and how we even got here? How air conditioning came to be? Uh, well, if you want to go back way back, air conditioning, different forms of comfort cooling have been around for eons in the you know, in the, the second century AD. Um, uh, or, I'm sorry, actually, I think the second century BC, perhaps possibly. Um, in China, people were the wealthy were were cooling their homes by uh, running cold water between walls. So there have been some sort of or like. You know, there were giant fans that were used. Um, so in some sense, there have been mechanical AC or uh, comfort cooling systems for a long time. But AC, as we know it, really started in the early part of the last century. So there were forms were invented um, starting in about the, the 1850s, but they didn't, they didn't arise in any way that would be in people's homes until about 1910 and then didn't, uh, didn't really boom until the 1950s. Um, so in about... The mid in the in the mid uh, the mid twentieth century, about ten percent of homes had air conditioning in the U.S. and now eighty six percent of homes did. But so for yeah, for a very long time, for most of human history, we didn't exist with this thing, you know. And we survived. You know, we might have been hot, we might have been humid, but <laughs> but we did survive. Uh, and, and we survived in a time where, where men wore pants. Yeah, <laughs> in, yeah in the heat, yeah. which was amazing to me. You at know, least, I think at least Europeans wore wore pants. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think. Uh, People were probably more uncomfortable. They probably smelled a lot worse than they do now, too. <laughs> but so going back to the history just for a moment before we come back to the present, mm-hmm. uh, you write about a man named John Gorey who was a physician mm-hmm. uh, who thought the, uh, that the, the cold was good for healing. Uh, yeah. He started – take us from that history through the man, uh, Mr. Carrier, who carrier air conditioning himself 50 years later. All right. So um, John Gorey was a physician in Florida, and, yeah, he thought that cooling was good for good, – cold was good for healing, and so – he developed the system um, of cooling rooms by suspending basins of ice from the ceiling. But before, this was even before refrigeration. So before refrigeration, ice had to be imported from the northern states. So as you can imagine, uh, it was a little bit difficult to transport, very difficult to store. A lot was lost. <laughs> um, not not the most practical way to keep cool. So John Corey, uh, I'm sorry, John Gorey, wanted to uh, to figure out a way to, to artificially cool these, these healing rooms. So he started by using a steam engine to force air through a tank of chilled brine. Um, and so that was the first uh, the sort of first modern AC in, in 1851. Um, but it was really uh, another 50 years before AC appeared in any in, in the marketplace. And so that was um, uh, a man named Willis Havler, Haviland Carrier, uh, a name that you might you might recognize from the Carrier Air Conditioning Company, which is still around. Um, he was an engineer who was tasked with 
dealing with a humidity problem in a Brooklyn printing press. So there was tons of industries. We don't even think about this now because there's not that many industries that just sort of shut down because of weather these days. Um, but so things like printing presses, pasta making, chocolate making, tobacco, none of these industries could really operate in the summertime due to heat and humidity. Um, so this engineer, he was tasked with, with solving a, a problem pr- plaguing a, br- a Brooklyn printing press, just the excess humidity made them shut down every summer. Um, and so he came up with, with a system that pumps air over coils filled with ammonia and then expelled that air with a fan. And so, the, you know, it's sort of this, this massive room-sized machine. Um, unfortunately, ammonia is also toxic. But um, that <laughs> successfully, you know, cooled rooms and lower humidity, humidity levels. So um, in, in, 19, uh, in 1925, one of his systems was installed at a theater in Times Square. And so 1925 was the first time that AC was available to the public. Before that, it was installed in a, in the first, um, I guess, publicly held business would have been uh, the New York Stock Exchange had a, had a unit in, I believe, 1902. But really, it was 1925 when the public um, was able to experience the wonders of AC for the first time. And what was the reaction? Do you know what the reaction was at that moment in time? Well, you know, it, it's interesting a novelty that people enjoy, but also there was almost immediately there were accounts of people saying that AC was making them feel sick. And so, and you see that now, too. I got a, I've gotten a, a lot of comments from people that say, you know, I don't use AC because it makes me feel ill. And I, I, I don't know, it's, you know, it might just sort of be anecdotal, but you hear people say that still, that, you know, oh, yeah. it makes them uncomfortable. Yeah. So I, you know, coming back, going backwards again, I'm going to come forwards because you have this interesting other article mm-hmm. you wrote on DYI and how people can do it themselves without air conditioning. Mm-hmm. But you, you, you talk about it in Arizona, the 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 Hohokam native people, what they mm-hmm. did before um, they were invaded to to, to keep themselves right. cool in their adobes, and how the, the development of Phoenix just altered everything. Yeah, so it's, you know, when you think about about the Southwest now, it almost seems impossible to us now that people would live there before air conditioning, but people live there <laughs> far, far earlier than that, you know, and how did they do that comfortably? Well, they lived sort of, they, they built their structures to be in tune with the environment in the sense that they were living in adobe houses, they had systems of canals um, that, uh, that, you know, increased vegetation and also had a cooling effect. Um, people would apparently hang, uh, you can, you can still do this in dry, in dry climates, uh, wet a, wet some sort of cloth or sheet and hang it in a doorway. And then when the wind breezes, that has a cooling effect. Um, and, but the biggest difference between, you know, uh, the pre-industrial era and now is just development. So Phoenix, as you know, Phoenix before, before we knew it at Phoenix had at most probably could support a population of, 60 to 100, uh, about 100,000 people, and now it has that area sprawling. It's 4 million people, and all of those people bring in heat, and they bring in, car, uh, I'm sorry, bring in uh, concrete. And so that's really one of, the, one of the reasons our cities are so much warmer now is the urban uh, heat island effect, which is when you just have these tons of, of, of materials that absorb heat and release it back in, uh, into the air at night, like concrete and asphalt. And so it really makes our cities feel a lot warmer than they would have been mm-hmm. you know, before, uh, before development. So given the reality of where we are in society now, so what, what I mean, you, you describe a personal alternative people can do in their homes if they wanted to do a, a do it a DYI. Um, mm-hmm. But we talk a bit about that, but also about what, where we, what we have to start thinking and wrestling with in terms of where we might want to go in the future, given the effect of air conditioning and also its pervasive reality. Yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not a huge optimist when it comes to this. So <laughs> air conditioning, you know, even if people and even if everybody in America started to realize what a problem AC was, it's also growing really quickly in the rest of the world. So right now we're clearly the most air conditioned country, but that's you know that's changing. Nearly everyone in China in urban areas has air conditioning now. Um, Rates are going up in Mexico, Indonesia, India, all of these places where it is genuinely very hot and people need AC. Um, but when they, the problem is, you know, when all of these places industrialize and have this, this technology, you know, that just increases, uh, increases climate change worldwide. Um, but, you know, there are things that we can do in our homes, you know, and unfortunately they don't really help with lowering humidity so these aren't necessarily things that are going to help in baltimore or really anywhere on the east coast 
But, um, you know, retrofitting, um, weatherizing your homes or window films that you can put on your windows to increase your insulation, um, installing fans. There's a, uh, we made a, a, our own DIY air conditioning system that you, sort what? of works if you like, yeah, if you like sit, sit on it and maybe work. <laughs> <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't super effective. I'm yeah. it right it's an orange bucket with holes in it. It's not very impressive. I have to, <laughs> it work that well. And you have and to sit is, on it? Yeah, you know, it's, I, luckily, luckily I live in Seattle, you know, I'm not depending on this, I'm depending on the, on the naturally cool weather. Um, but yeah, there's a, and if, if anybody's interested in making their own, you can, you can, we made a video that's on grist.org if you'd like to see how to make your own, it's called a swamp, a swamp cooler, um, and that uses a, uses a, an evaporation technique, it just forces, forces uh, water through it, or forces air through a wet cooling pad, essentially. Um, yeah, so there are things that people can do, but they're not accessible to everybody. So everybody can't, everybody doesn't own their home, so everybody can't right. retrofit or install a heat pump. You know, I'm a renter. There's no way my, you know, way. my landlord isn't going to let me, you know, install, you know, better insulation in the house, you know. So, so these, aren't, these aren't really things that are accessible to all people, which is right. really unfortunate. Well, Katie Herzog, you write some great stuff, and you're a really good writer. Thank I, you. I appreciate you coming on the show, and we look forward to talking to you a great deal more. Um, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Katie Herzog, a staff writer at the environmental news site, grist.org, and we'll be linking to her work at steinershow.org and soundbitesradio.org as well. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure. And again, let me say farewell for my last time to do it because I'll be off tomorrow uh, on the road, and we'll, uh, Dr. Kimberly Moffat will be taking over the mics tomorrow uh, and uh, talking about uh, President Clinton's uh, – I say President Clinton? Secretary Clinton's speech list tomorrow night, tonight at the DNC. But this is Stephanie Malvern's last day to work with me in the studio. She's off, been with us for over four years now, off to Princeton University uh, to get her graduate degree in public policy. She's just been a joy and a charm to work with all these years, and we will all miss her here uh, and look forward to staying in touch, and good luck in the future. Stephanie Malvern, it's good to have you with us here for these last four years. Everybody's applauding across the glass as they should. Thank you all. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media. are made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producers are Mark Gunnery and Stephanie Mavronis. Our producer is Amani Spence. Uh, our engineer is Andrea Melton. Our interns are Morgan Barber and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. The podcast Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app and go to soundbitesradio.org to listen to past episodes of Soundbites. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care, Stephanie Mavronis. Bye.